0: Good Sunday morning! This is the Arts Section. I'm your host Gary Zydek. Welcome to WDCB's Arts & Culture magazine. Every week we spotlight creative people, events, and ideas in the Chicago area arts community while also fostering broader discussions on music, film, theater, and other creative endeavors. On today's program, I'll take you with me on my visit to the Elmhurst Art Museum to check out its new Picasso exhibit. The dueling critics Carrie Reed and Jonathan Abarbanel will join me to review a new production that imagines a fictional meeting between two renowned writers. Later in the show, I'll take a closer look at WTTW's new season of Chicago Stories, and WDCB's Dan Bender sits down with acclaimed jazz pianist Jahari Stampley. All that's coming up. Thanks for making some time for arts and culture this morning. Institutions all over the world are commemorating the 50th anniversary of Pablo Picasso's death this year. The iconic artist was born in 1881 and lived to the ripe age of 91, passing away on April 8, 1973. The Musée Picasso in Paris Kicked off the celebration earlier this year with a special exhibit curated by renowned designer Paul Smith that mixed classic works by Picasso with pieces by contemporary artists. In New York at the Brooklyn Museum, an exhibit titled It's Poblomatic explores the Spanish master's work through a feminist lens. But you don't have to go to Paris or Brooklyn to partake in the celebration. The Elmhurst Art Museum is participating in the project with a new exhibit titled Picasso, 50 Years Later. The exhibition is divided into three parts, the first featuring Picasso originals, the second is a world premiere of a touring show focused on Picasso's printmaking, and the third spotlights a selection of pieces created by local contemporary artists. I visited the Elmhurst Art Museum last week ahead of the exhibit's grand opening to talk with some of the people who brought Picasso 50 years later to life.
1: I enjoyed looking at a wider breadth of his work because I feel like, you know, you go to the Art Institute and you say, aha, Cubism, Pablo Picasso, and then you kind of move into the next room. But preparing for the show, I really enjoyed looking deeper into different things about his life this is John McKinnon, executive director of the
0: Elmhurst Art Museum and co-curator of the new Picasso exhibit.
1: Living 91 years, you live through lots of different artistic movements. Basically, he started uh, some of his artistic career when he was like 12 or 14 and and, and stopped making work when he was 90. I mean, that's uh, that's a big chunk of, of history right there.
0: Right. When I first learned about this show and I'm like, 50 years, I'm like, that can't be right because I think of him painting in like the 20s and so to think that he passed away in in the 70s and then he was still working as you mentioned
1: right right yeah it's kind of mind-boggling that it's not that long ago
0: mckinnon says picasso 50 years later developed organically when a couple different ideas fell into place
1: when we were asked if we were interested in a traveling show picasso and the progressive proof which is in our middle gallery and Richard Townsend, who I knew uh, previously, suggested that maybe we were a good venue for it. We had already been talking to another collector, a local collector that had been involved with the museum since before it was constructed, the Allens, and uh, they had offered their collection for, for something, and we were trying to explore that idea. So after those two things, I asked everyone involved if they might be willing to exhibit together
0: so the exhibition is divided into three distinct parts. the The first part includes some Picasso originals, and these are on loan from a, a private collector.
1: Yes. So, um, you know, we knew that those were already in his uh, in his collection and potentially available to exhibit at the museum. And you know, being very helpful um, for years and years and years and decades, you know, he he had offered that up. We had had multiple lunches and conversations. So that just felt right. Of, of like, okay, let's let's try to contextualize. Picasso, because we knew the traveling show only has, I think it's about 20 pieces. It wasn't enough to fill all of our galleries anyway. So we were going to have to do something, and we thought the Allens have uh, this great collection that we can build off of to tell some of the story of Picasso and his peers to start off the exhibit, then have the very focused print exhibition, and then perhaps we can end with a reflection on 50 years ago and how. Picasso's legacy still continues today by asking area artists to submit work in response.
0: McKinnon says that third part helps connect the larger exhibit to the museum's mission.
1: For us, an exhibition of a national touring show that's part of a global tribute has a name recognition of someone like Picasso is such a big show for us. And so we had to kind of question of why are we doing this and what's the connection and why here, you know, one answer to that would be, well, we're coming at it at a contemporary angle. We are a contemporary museum, and so asking artists today to respond to it made a lot of sense for us. Yeah, we went out and we, we asked a number of people, some of which made, made new work. Laura Berger and, and Liz Flores made new work for the exhibition. Other people proposed different things. Richard Hull uh, did a residency with us and some students over the summer with focus on Picasso. So we really kind of tried to incorporate it into our program as much as possible.
0: The museum underwent some renovations. Now, was that specifically tied to ensuring that the museum could host some of these paintings, or was that already planned?
1: Good question. We did have some updates to our facilities, and because of that, we were closed this past spring, and um, thankfully we had grants, we had funders, we had a number of people that, that helped us uh, update our system, and when we did that, we took the opportunity to make sure it was climate-controlled system that would be uh, more environmentally stable for Uh, artwork such as this and so previous to to this spring we couldn't have hosted an exhibition of this scale or um of this you know i don't know potentially uh value and so maybe it opens up more more possibilities for us but uh but you know we are very grateful that we had a kind of cause and effect with our HVAC system, something that no one ever wants to fundraise for or, or pay for. And then we could say, but look what we can do with it. And we, you know, we have opened up a Picasso show. So it was great timing in that respect.
0: If you're just tuning in, this is the arts section. My name is Gary Zydek. I'm previewing the Elmhurst Art Museum's new exhibit, Picasso 50 Years Later. The second part of the exhibition, titled Picasso and the Progressive Proof, lino-cut prints from a private collection, shines a light on the artist's printmaking period. It's curated by Chicago-based art consultant and historian Richard Townsend. The casual art observer, maybe when they hear Picasso, they think of his paintings and sculpture, but printmaking was a significant part of
2: his career. I love that you bring that up, uh, that you always think of his painting and his sculpture. So you're absolutely right. He was a prestigious printmaker. Printmaking really excited his creative juices, if I can say that. He was a master printmaker. And that's, I don't think, something that people really recognize, as you aptly point out.
0: We're not going to give like an art technique class here, don't but hurt. as far as
2: the difference between
0: for, I guess, that time period where maybe Certain printmakers are using
2: wood blocks. How is the linoleum block process different? That's a great question. Wood block and linoleum block printmaking, of course, are similar in that you're carving away from a block of material to create an image that is then, that block is then inked and printed. But this is critical to our understanding of Picasso's late work, which Picasso and the Progressive Proof, the exhibition is all about, and that is that this is late work. He's an older man, he's in his 70s when, you know, and he's making these prints uh, and it's arduous, it's a lot of work. So linoleum is easier to carve, but he takes that easy art form, so to speak, and elevates it, and in fact, in this great creative burst in the last years of his life, he is, he makes around 200 uh, linoleum block prints. So we talked at the the beginning about this misperception
0: among the public or lack of awareness of Picasso's printmaking yeah. ability. So
2: was that part of the inspiration for you to, to create this or what led you to put this together? Well, I was inspired by a private collector with whom I work who had acquired a group of these proofs for Picasso's first lino cut. And I just didn't know anything about them. They are not widely studied or exhibited. So I said, to the collector, let's look at acquiring some more. And we did. We, uh, I helped him acquire around 10 uh, more proofs. We were able to then organize a small exhibition around this theme because it's really little known, little studied, little appreciated. Since this is a radio, we have to uh, paint a picture for the
0: audience, so when visitors come to this middle part of the, the bigger exhibition, to the uh, Picasso and the progressive proof part, they'll see literally the progression okay. of, of a print. It's so cool.
2: It, it, it is really amazing to just stand in front of a wall or two and see how one image develops. You see the, the early image, the first stages, and then different color combinations, and then Picasso carves away some more of the block, and then you arrive at the final published print, we would call it the final you know, approved print that Picasso says, yes, go ahead and print, and it's done, uh, and then he signs it.
0: Townsend is excited to see how visitors engage with the exhibit, which offers some insight into Picasso's process.
2: Just getting inside the mind of an artist, I mean, and one of the greatest artists who have ever lived. I mean, how exciting is that, to get inside the mind of one of the greatest artists who have ever lived?
0: The final piece of Picasso, 50 years later, features a curated selection of contemporary works in conversation with Picasso. All the pieces come from local artists, including Liz Flores.
3: Picasso and the Cubist movement really was a big influence when I was first starting out. When I graduated college and was getting back into my painting practice, I was trying to figure out my style, which is, I think, what every artist is trying to figure out. And so, you know, I'd be going to museums, be doing kind of my own research into What kind of art did i like and so i was very drawn to picasso's work it's a very abstracted work i knew that i wanted to sort of go in that route i want i was very interested in painting women you know figurative paintings but dissecting you know those figures into different shapes and colors and seeing how those kinds of things could come together to tell a story
0: so did you create new pieces for this
3: yeah i created all new pieces for the show um so the three paintings and then the drawings that you see in there were yeah all new for, just for the show when i toured elmhurst and um you know they were like you can kind of do as much as you want or you know as big as you want i was like that's great i really want to do some some large paintings i wanted to kind of play around with the motif of like the lounging woman the re- the woman relaxing Um, but do it in my style. And I really was interested in doing these women that are kind of laying on these like ornate rugs. Growing up, my parents have like an old Victorian home, and so it's kind of like styled in like all of that. And so we have all these rugs that have like all these patterns and tassels and stuff like that. And so I've been wanting to do that for a while. I just didn't have a show. I could kind of play with that because it's the first time I've ever done anything like that where I don't have everything color blocked. And so the women are color blocked, but then you have, they're laying on these kind of ornate patterned rugs. Yeah, I decided to kind of take a leap with the show and try it here. And I, yeah, I love the way it turned out.
0: That's Chicago-based artist Liz Flores. Her work is on display in the third part of the Elmhurst Art Museum's new exhibit, Picasso, 50 Years Later. It'll be on display all the way through January 7th, 2024. That feels funny to say. I'm just getting used to saying 2023. You can find more information at elmhurstartmuseum.org. And a quick reminder, if you listen to the art section Sunday mornings on WDCB, thank you. But also check out the website over at theartsection.org. You can find a bunch of additional content. And there's an archive of past episodes and individual features that you can listen to anytime you want. Check out theartsection.org. And you are listening to the arts section. I'm Gary Zydek. Joining me now remotely are the Dueling Critics, Carrie Reed and Jonathan Abarbanel. Good morning.
4: Good morning, Gary. Good morning, good morning, Gary.
0: A fictionalized encounter between macabre author Edgar Allan Poe and Argentine playwright and poet Alfonsina Storni is the basis for Water People Theater's new production, North and Sur. The play is making its U.S. premiere here in Chicago at Instituto Cervantes in the River North neighborhood. From what I understand, the production isn't presented in a traditional theater, but rather in three different spaces. We'll likely talk more about that. Uh, But first, Carrie, it's actually been a minute since Water People Theater has presented something for in-person audiences.
5: Yes, it has. The last full-length show I saw from them was in September 2019, it was a production called The Delicate Tears of the Waning Moon, which was written by and starred um, artistic director Rebecca Aleman. Uh, that show is presented as part of the Destinos, Chicago International Latino Theater Festival. Notably, this show is not part of Destinos, which is opening uh, towards the end of this month and will run uh, through October into November. But it does feel like a, a, an excellent curtain raiser. Uh, North and Sewer, as you mentioned, is about the sort of, otherworldly uh, meeting of the minds and souls between um, Alfonsino Storni, who was I was unfamiliar with, I will confess, and Edgar Allan Poe, who I think most of us know. It's written by a uh, Venezuelan poet, playwright, and journalist, Oscar Perdomo-Marin. In some ways, this play follows a perhaps familiar trope. I, I think we've seen plays about people in the other world kind of meeting, or the, uh, or the at least meeting between two similar parallel lives who maybe didn't ever have a chance to meet in real life, but the playwright it was going with the, if these people met, what would that be like? I think because Storny is not well-known, or at least certainly not well-known to me, uh, there's a lot of things that I felt that I learned about her life. Um, and I think the way that the play is structured asks us to think about the ways that these two, in some ways very tragic lives, lived at different points of time at different places in the world, have parallels and yet also contrast with each other. I found it a rather arresting and lyrical production. Jonathan, I'd be interested to know your thoughts. Were you familiar with Storney to start with? I was not, and I didn't think I think, unless one has studied
6: 20th century Spanish poetry, we probably don't know anything about her life or her work. She was, uh, I think, as you said, Argentinian. Uh, and North and Sur, uh, literally North and South, uh, in English, rectifies that problem. And I agree that this is a, a most appealing production. I found it passionate yet genteel. It is a bilingual production uh, and in which uh, the playwright, uh, Marine, who is Venezuelan, imagines this otherworldly meetup between Storney and the writer she greatly admired, Edgar Allan Poe. The careers had many parallels, as they both were journalists and critics, and above all, they were both were highly innovative poets and, and writers of other types of fiction as well. And they were both besotted with love and death. Uh, uh, Poe died in 1849. But Storny was a 20th century figure who died by suicide in 1938. So she's the one in the play who conjures Poe into existence. Storny knows all about him and his work, but of course he knows nothing about her. So she must introduce herself to him uh, and to us, uh, the English-speaking audience. Now, Storny speaks only in Spanish and Poe speaks only in English. Both of them accompanied by lovely live solo violinists, uh, and with video screens which provide the necessary uh, projections of two way translations. Uh, I, th- I think that the playwright Marine does an excellent job in mating Storney and Poe. Uh, Marine himself is also, I feel, poetic. You already made that point, Carrie, and also sometimes humorous. And it really quickly becomes clear why and how he sees links and parallels between these two writers. The conflict, although it isn't all that intense, is that Poe, as a man of the early 19th century, isn't really prepared to accept a woman on equal terms as a writer and a poet. Uh, And indeed, Storny today, we learn in the play, is regarded very much as a feminist before her time, who successfully made her own way, not only in a man's world, but in a Latino man's world in South America.
5: Right, and they both, another parallel is they both had personal choices in their lives, which shocked the people around them. Uh, in Storney's case, she was a single mother at a time when this was definitely very frowned upon. Poe, of course, married his 13-year-old uh, cousin, Virginia, and like most of the women in Poe's life, she died early um, from tuberculosis, it being the plague of the 19th century, although, you know, certainly other plagues have come along since then. I think that that's what's interesting is this idea of the life force. I mean, it's interesting that Storni, the real Storni, did take her own life, but I feel like within the context of this play, she is really representing a certain kind of vitality um, that is kind of, that she's sort of needling the character of Poe with. I don't know if you if you picked up on that Jonathan or if that was your impression but in the sort of faint and parry between them it definitely feels like she is the one urging him to reevaluate some of his thoughts and certainly you're correct you know looking at them along gender as well that a woman can be just as good a poet as a man um and yet there's also I think this this underlying sadness that that doesn't quite quite move into you know uh Lacrimose, gothic (laughs) despair. But it's definitely woven in very well. I think that um, there's a delicacy to it, and I don't know if you said that already, Jonathan, but I feel like that's one of the things that I found most intriguing. This is a play that does not sort of overpower you, although you certainly will learn a lot of details about their lives. It doesn't overpower you with biographical details. It sort of lets you feel like you're being gently led into this world. Getting to know, and, and I think to that point, Gary, you mentioned that it's not a traditional staging. This uh, show is done at the Instituto Cervantes, which is downtown, and it's three different rooms, and we have people who kind of lead us in this little ambulatory take on the tale. We start off in a small room that's been sort of set up like a cabaret, where Thorny and the wonderful violinist perform together. And then, much like the, the poem, The Raven, we hear, you know, the seconding call, and that is taking us into the what is the library at the Instituto Cervantes, where the first encounter between Poe and Storni happens, and then finally we are led into the actual auditorium space. So it really almost feels like, you know, I don't know if Orpheus and Eurydice would be an appropriate <laughs> parallel, but we're kind of being taken on this almost otherworldly little ambulatory journey through what is a very lovely building on its own terms, and I think that that's a really smart staging choice as well.
6: The way I expressed it, uh, I think, uh, in my first comment, I said that it's a genteel,
5: but passionate, passionate yeah.
6: production. Yeah, and I agree with you. This is not a play that, in by any in any way, hammers you over the head. Uh, it's, it's it's very uh, very very well drawn. Yeah, it's yeah. It's,
5: two, it's It's not two didactic. People, it's
6: two people plus a musician. It's a very intimate production, as you mentioned, staged in three rooms of the Instituto Cervantes, which is just a block away from the new Bally's Casino (laughs) and and (laughs) the Temple. And now it is played because it is intimate. There are only 30 patrons at each performance, and you'll be offered a complimentary glass of wine before the show, and you will walk the short distance between the the three rooms uh, where the three scenes are set. Chris Torrey is Alfonsina and Eric K. Roberts is Poe. They present us with well-grounded characters and emotions both loud and soft. And uh, Chris Torrey, as uh, Alfonsina, also does some singing,
4: some Mm -hmm. of Storney's
6: poetry set into music, and she has a very strong alto voice. The performance runs just 75 minutes, and the performances begin at 7 p.m. early. So note the time if you go to see it. Right. But it also means you'll be out in plenty of time for a River North dinner or
5: to test out the slots and the tables <laughs> at the Bally's Casino. Right. And and you know, considering that there is, you know, there are hints about the ideas of colonialism embedded in the title of North and Sewer. Uh, Dorney at one point tells Poe, everyone in the South is always looking to the North, you know, talking about the validation that comes from, you know, the more imperialist or colonialist, you know, Western forces. And there is feminism, and there are all these elements, but it is not didactic. And that is, I think, a real testament to the playwright and to the production. I think you and I, Jonathan, would agree that we've seen plays of this nature where you have two characters who are somewhat similar yet also apart, and it can sometimes devolve into a little bit of a, you know, a tit-for-tat, back and forth, back and forth. Where the intellectual ideas kind of overpower the dramatic intent, and I was so pleased that that was so much not the case here. And um, if for no other reason, I'm I've been digging into you know what sources I can find online of Storney's poetry, and so I feel like an entire new artist has been opened up to me, which is truly always a gift.
6: Well, indeed it is. So so we both agree that these two people are not like the dueling critics. <laughs> uh, no one would accuse <laughs> us of being lyrical <laughs> <laughs> no, or genteel. <laughs> I, I would say North and Sur is, is perhaps less a play and more a performance piece but that really doesn't matter because it succeeds in creating its own atmosphere and a dynamic uh, and, and both the atmosphere and the dynamic are quite pleasing and it introduces Anglo audiences to Alfonso Story, who is yes. someone who is well worth
5: and I was there opening night, and I don't think you, you were, Jonathan, so I don't know if you would have heard this announcement, but it sounds like from uh, artistic director uh, Rebecca Aleman said that they are going to be in residence, at least for for this season, if not beyond, at the Institutes de Cervantes, which I think is great. I truly, really admired their last show, as I mentioned, which was part of the Destinos Festival, and that one was done at, at the smaller 1700 space at Steppenwolf, oh, four years ago. They did keep pretty busy with uh, virtual productions, as many other companies did. But they are definitely, uh, you know, a little jewel in the Chicago theater scene, and I'm so happy that they found a home that they can, you know, that they can use for their own
0: purposes. All right, Water People Theaters U.S. premiere North and Sur, continues through October sixth. And uh, before we wrap up, Jonathan, you have a, a pick this week.
6: I do. I have a personal pick. It is the world premiere of The Innocence of Seduction. Uh, Written and directed by Mark Pratt at the City Lit Theater Company in Edgewater. It is running now through October 8th. This is the second part of a trilogy that Pratt is writing about the American comic book industry. Part one was done last season by City Lit, and it was an introduction to the formation of modern comic books uh, in New York City in the 1930s and into the 1940s. This is part two. Set mostly in 1954, when the comic book industry was, uh, uh, was almost struck a, 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 a fatal blow by a best-selling book called The Seduction of the Innocent by the psychologist Frederick Wortham, who said that comic books with uh, images of violence and sexuality and horror and, you know, ghoulish uh, stories were the cause of juvenile delinquency, and uh, the U.S. Senate took up hearings about it and uh, almost uh, led to censorship of comic books. Indeed, it did, because the comic book publishers censored themselves and set up something called the Comic Code Authority, which is still in existence. Anyway, the person who most opposed uh, Frederick Wortham and Congress and the idea of censorship was William Gaines, a comic book publisher and the founder, maybe some of you will know the name, of Mad Magazine, which he started in part as an end run around the comic book authorities, because Mad Magazine wasn't a comic book, it was a humor and satire and burlesque magazine. Anyway... The Innocence of Seduction has very little to do with Mad Magazine, but it has a great deal to do with William Gaines and his struggles with his fellow comic book publishers. It is a heck of a story. It really is lively and engaging. It is not a great play by Mark Pratt. He introduces many—well, if it was a murder mystery, we call them McGuffins. Mm-hmm. Many characters, artists, uh, are comic book artists and writers— who are interesting in and of themselves, but have absolutely no impact on the major tension, which is the story between Gaines and Frederick Wortham and the threat of censorship. And the play would be better if it really focused on that story. The Innocence of Seduction, now in its world premiere at City Lit Theatre Company through
5: October 8th. I haven't had a chance to see that yet, Jonathan, but yeah, maybe you and I have talked about this before, but. How there seems to sometimes be a lost opportunity for theaters to tap into the large and enthusiastic fandom of the comic book world. I know Mark cracked a little bit, so I know that he is actually a fan and he is creating this world to kind of bring in audiences who may not normally go to theater, but like, oh, this is about a world that I do know. So that in itself, I think, is something to be applauded, that there's a, a chance to really tap into a perhaps un- underutilized fan base in order to build more enthusiasm for these sorts of performances. Yep.
0: For sure. Carrie Jonathan, thanks so much. We'll see you next week.
5: You're most welcome. Thank you, Kerry.
0: Also, this just came in... Another longtime Chicago theater leader is stepping down after a 30 year tenure at Court Theater, the professional theater at the University of Chicago. Charles Newell is transitioning out of his role as Artistic Director in June of 2024. Newell will still program the 24-25 season, and then he'll assume the role of Senior Artistic Consultant through June of 2025. And then according to this announcement, the Office of the Provost at the University of Chicago will lead a comprehensive international search for Court theater's next Artistic Director in the coming months. So another big change in the local theatre landscape but I, I think this is one of the final dominoes to fall as far as long-time leaders stepping down. We'll talk about it more with the Dueling Critics next week. I'm Gary Zydek. You're listening to The Arts Section. Chicago, Chicago A tragic fire that claimed the lives of 92 children on the west side of Chicago, an inspiring social worker who established one of the country's most famous settlement houses, and the rise and fall of two iconic American retailers that were based in Chicago are among the topics that are explored in the new season of WTTW's Chicago Stories. The weekly documentary program provides a comprehensive look at a wide range of Chicago history. The upcoming season kicks off Friday, September 22nd, with an episode titled Angels Too Soon, The School Fire of 58, which offers a deep dive into a devastating fire that burned at Our Lady of the Angels School. Other episodes are lighter, like the one that will air October 27th, which is all about Chicago's history as the candy capital of the U.S., I recently caught up with Chicago Stories producer Eddie Griffin to talk about the upcoming season. He says the program has a long history at WTTW.
7: It aired for a long, for a long time and a long time ago, and I think we just kind of missed it. You know, it was, it was such a good brand for WTTW. It was such like a, we were able to put our definitive storytelling style. On you know, Chicago stories, and to, you know, kind of be the definitive record as far as television documentaries go in Chicago.
0: there's really a, a wide variety of types of stories featured on the program. When it comes to the subject matter, are you looking for lesser-known stories or to go deeper on specific pieces of local history?
7: I think the topics are really well known. Like when you say like one thing you know about Chicago, if you're not from Chicago is that, Chicago reversed the river. But you don't really know how or, or the real why. Um, and so I think some of these are, are, are topics that people are familiar with, and they can say, oh, yeah, I, I've heard of that. Now we've, we've got it set up for you to come and, and to learn the why, to learn the how, to learn the full story. Um, and sometimes, you know, you, you're, you may be in for a shock that it's, you know, that some of these stories are more deep, have more meaning, uh, touch more things inside Chicago and outside the rest of the world, too, that were sort of landmark things that happen in Chicago, but that uh, affect other things throughout the entire country.
0: And then just to go along with that, what makes for a a good Chicago story?
7: You know, when we do our research, when we sort of pitch uh, projects or pitch shows, we've got to make sure that there's a real story behind it, too, and that it's, you know, that it is deep. It has meaning, um, that it's uh, something that people are going to look forward to That's not just, uh, here's the answer, and and it's quick and over and solved. You know, we want to dive deep and to really get into a story.
0: One of the stories Griffin dove into this season was looking into Chicago's one-time title as candy capital of the U.S.
7: Almost every big candy brand in the country started in Chicago. You know, there's Hershey out on the East Coast, and even Hershey sort of saw his chocolate-making equipment at the World's Fair in 1893. Um, But all these major brands like Mars, uh, which is Snickers and Milky Way and Curtis Candy, which you may not recognize by name, but they make Butterfinger and Baby Ruth, Um, Tootsie Roll, all these candy companies started here in Chicago. And so the first thing is you want to say why, you know, and that's where we come in. Okay, we'll tell you the why.
0: That's the candy capital episode is one that you produced. Is that, was that a
7: topic you were familiar with or how did what interested you about that? That can, you know Chicago being you know, quote unquote the candy capital of America was something that I've heard of. but I had no clue why. And even you know when I sat down to start doing the research, I was like, oh my God, Snickers was made here. That's crazy to you know the, I think some of those candy brands are just so big. That you just think that, you know, they're, you don't even know where they're from because they're that big. But when they're all here and predom- predominantly all, like, the factories around Chicago's west side, like, all this candy came from Chicago. Um, and so it's, I think it's up to us and up to WTTW and Chicago Stories to tell that story.
0: Probably a lot of people think of Wrigley, the Wrigley building, Wrigley Field. That's probably part of this story. But, and without So no spoiler, why was Chicago the candy capital?
7: Um, it had to do with its location. You know, we were the center of, uh, of shipping. You know, early on, mid-1800s, all the railroads from the East Coast run through Chicago, go out West. Um, so it was easy or really it kept costs down to be able to ship product in and out, um, you know the final product to go wherever it needed to go but also to get the raw ingredients raw materials you know there's so many trains so many lines coming into chicago that just kept costs down so it made sense for Mars, uh, a candy manufacturer, you know, originally starting out in Minneapolis, to come down to Chicago where he can cut his costs down and start selling, you know, little chocolate bars for, for five cents. Because candy, you know, candy's is profitable, but only by very, very slim margins. And so anything they could do to get the costs down, let's come to Chicago. And then after a while, once everyone's there, where are you going to go? You're going to come to Chicago because everyone else is there. And it kind of creates this own, this little network uh, or industry here. Another name for the candy capital, or at least for the documentary, could be the rise and the fall of the candy capital because, you know, the same things that led to Chicago being such a, a valuable place for candy sort of led to its demise, too. Is, you know, we get into, or the corporations get into, um, you know, divesting, into merging, until all of a sudden, you know, you don't need to produce your candy in here because now you could just put it on a plane and ship and costs are low. So you see kind of the, the, flagship candy companies start to leave chicago similar
0: themes in the uh this season's last episode which profiles sears and montgomery ward the rise and fall of these once iconic brands that have now disappeared if you're just tuning in i'm gary zydig this is the arts section i'm talking with wttw producer eddie griffin about the upcoming season of chicago stories the september 29th episode will focus on the city's efforts to reverse the chicago river
7: the Chicago River. Everyone knows it's reversed, but do you know how? Do you know why? Do you know that it took eight years to complete, um, and that two hundred and seventy-five people died? Um, when we when we say reversing the river, what they actually mean is they they dug a canal that was that ran lower than the river, so that um, the water would you know instead of running into Lake Michigan, which it had you know by nature, um, would would fall backwards into the canal and run down, and they built you know, a long 28-mile canal that would connect to the Des Plaines River, which then flowed into the Illinois River and then back into the Mississippi. Um, so about 1850, Chicago gets hit with cholera epidemics and typhoid, primarily because of sanitation, because the city's sewers were just, be- were, er, there were no sewers, but just wastewater was just being sent into the river. And the river, when it originally flowed into Lake Michigan, was the source of Chicago's drinking water. So we were literally poisoning ourselves. And so, you know, they they tried a couple things. They tried building sewers. You know, that's part of the show, part of the documentary, is how an engineer came to Chicago from Boston and raised the city to build sewers below. Um, You know, so if you go downtown in some areas and some on the east side and the lower west side of Chicago, you can see sidewalks. They're 10 feet below the regular grade Mm -hmm. um, because we raised the city to build sewers underneath. So to, to try to attempt, you know, to get better water sanitation, it only partially worked. Stuff was still going back into the river. And as long as we're getting our drinking water from right offshore in Lake Michigan, it doesn't matter really where that water intake crib is. If, if all of our filth and wastewater and toilet water is running into the, to the river, it's just going right into the lake where we're drawing our drinking water. People were getting sick. As the population started to grow, people got a lot sicker. Mm-hmm. There was almost sort of a, a last option Hail Mary attempt to you know, play with Mother Nature and reverse the river. So at that point you think okay well that must have been like a, a, a solution that was you know just implemented and there we are. No it's a it's an eight-year struggle um, not only to dig this giant 28-mile canal backwards um, but also to make it legal and you know if, if you're a resident of you know downstate Illinois or say St. Louis you don't want all this wastewater coming into where you get your water st louis was getting their water from right at the mississippi and the missouri rivers Um, so they fought it for a decade Uh, it went all the way to the u.s supreme court but what makes it such a chicago story is that the chicago engineers and the people who reversed the river didn't really care they didn't (laughs) wait for permission they just dug Mm -hmm. they dug Um, you know, eight years, but it was still in process and it's being fought and battled in the courts of, you know, is this, are you allowed to do this or, you know, are are you putting it people down river at risk, which they were, but this was the only solution. You know, this is the only solution with the technology available. You know, we're talking 1892 is when it started. Um, This was the only solution to keep people in the city of Chicago safe. Um, So they just did it. And when they got close enough, they're hearing some rumblings of, you know, maybe the Supreme Court is going to step in and shut them down. Say this is unconstitutional. You can't do this to these other people. Um, What do they do? They, They go in and dynamite the last bit of just the last bit of earth and rock that are keeping the water of the river from flowing into the canal. And then just at that point there's nothing you can do I mean there's you know billions of gallons of water coming your way you can't stop it even if you wanted to so they just said all right this is it we've got it <laughs> we've got to make this happen um, they snuck in there in the middle of the night the, the, the trustees and, you know, the, the sort of the, the engineers who were in charge of that last phase. Um, and, you know, they just started dynamiting and even just with little shovels started picking at it just to get that water going. Because once you got a steady stream, then it was all just going to break through the dam. Um, and from that point, it was over and done with you couldn't stop it if you wanted to
0: (laughs) quite a feat of engineering there it's obviously good for Chicago but not great for St. Louis what did St. Louis end up doing
7: yeah so in this episode we wanted to get the St. Louis perspective so they fought it they fought it as hard as they could they fought it in the courts it went all the way to the Supreme Court I mean this was you know a landmark decision that eventually the Supreme Court ruled in favor of Illinois and Chicago because we all know that the water going down the Mississippi is dirtier. It just is because it's our wastewater. But people in St. Louis can't prove that they're getting sick because of some molecule of disease from Chicago. Like, how would you actually prove that? You know, you can't disregard that it could have come from somewhere else. Six years after the canal is open, Supreme Court finally says, no, there's nothing you can do. You can't shut it down. Um, oh, and by the way, St. Louis, you're also doing the same thing to Memphis. You're sending your wastewater in the Mississippi, and it's going down south to Memphis and New Orleans. Um, so, you know, nice job, good try, good effort. But, you know, Chicago has, you know, a right to do this or, 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 or at the very least can't stop it. But there were consequences, too. You know, we sent a lot more water downstream than nature had ever intended. So it actually started to flood some Illinois farmland. And, you know, so people downstate didn't like it either. You know, yeah, Chicago was clean, but now you've kind of, you've added all these new elements. You've introduced new species that we had never seen before. So that took a toll uh, on downstate Illinois too. There's some consequence for Illinoisans as well.
0: Griffin says a lot of research goes into creating each episode. The search for archival images or footage is always very important.
7: You know, we don't make a show unless we know that there's a real story there and that there's sources and citations and, you know, maybe most importantly, archival images, film clips, photos um, that, that enhance the storytelling. You know, there's there's a ton of stories we'd love to do. But if you know, if we're talking prior to the turn of the 20th century. You may be stuck without, you know, archive without visual representation. Be good, a, a great podcast, a good book, but when we're talking, you know, the visual medium of television documentaries, um, we need to find and secure as much archive as possible. Any kind of media, archive media, that we can get our hands on to help tell the story. So once we kind of secure all those things, then yeah, we dive headfirst into research. Um, I worked with a great writer on the reversal of the Chicago River, uh, Robert Lorzell, um, who's actually written books about that time period. Um, so he had a ton of research already on hand um, because what we found out quickly, with, at least with the river, was that, that was sort of, it's sort of a, a public health and a science show. I mean, the, the, the cause is obviously it was securing the city from the risk of disease, but we had to dive into like what, what was really happening at that point? Why were the people getting sick? What were sort of the statistics of, of who was getting sick, from where, from how? And once that all kind of came clear, then it was, yeah, this was something that they needed to do because they were afraid of, you know, the city not surviving.
0: So for that story uh, 1850
7: 1850 it starts in like the 1850s like we we or Chicagoans knew that you know, the river was polluting the drinking water. We didn't have the technology at that point to solve it.
0: You talked about, you know, for a TV program, you want those visuals, so are there renderings or photos?
7: Yeah, luckily, the the reversal was done by what is now called the Metro Water Reclamation District. It was called the Sanitary District back then, but they are the, the agency that now cleans your wastewater. When they commissioned the reversal, or when they commissioned the dig, they hired photographers. And so we have photography from 1892 up until January of 1900, when the you know when they when I said before when they broke open the dam. So that was a case where we have like this amazing archive, courtesy of MWRD, of it actually being built and of it actually uh, uh, of the people, of the workers, of the tools, of the equipment, of the rock itself. It became a tourist attraction too. people in 1893 to come see the fair would also go out on a boat down the river and go see the construction site so there's a lot of documentation um, and it was just it was kind of cool to see this happening I don't know if we could tell this story without that library collection of photographs because they're just so crucial to showing you how big this was and you know the dynamite blast that broke open the rocks you know seeing the looks on the faces of these laborers and workers who for, you know, eight years dug dirt.
0: I think I was on the the WTTW website, so obviously people can watch the programs they'll air in eight consecutive weeks starting September 22nd. But then there's also these additional resources on the WTTW website.
7: Yeah. So what we like to do, we call them our companion websites. So it's, you know, if you're interested in the show, you watch the show and you want to find out a little bit more, or you want to, you know, do a deeper dive, the website has, you know, for each episode has more for you, has, you know, original content, original material. Um, You know, a lot of cases there's timelines, um, so you can kind of get a recap of everything that's happened, but then also new material, new stories, new original production to correspond with each episode.
0: That's Eddie Griffin. He's a producer at WTTW. The new season of Chicago Stories starts Friday, September 22nd and continues through November 10th. You can find more info at the companion website, wtwcom slash Stories. This is the Arts Section. I'm Gary Zydek. While it's not unheard of for musicians to begin making their mark on the world as teenagers... Those often are the stories of child prodigies who display talent at a very young age. Pianist Jahari Stampley grew up in Maywood, the son of musical parents. But what makes his story unusual is that he didn't begin playing or practicing music until he was 14. He wound up attending the prestigious Manhattan School of Music, and now at the age of 23, he's already been performing internationally as a solo pianist with the bands of jazz stars like Stanley Clark, Derek Hodge, and Marquise Hill. Today marks the release of his first album, Still Listening. You're listening right now to the title track. Stampley is celebrating with an album release show tonight at Space in Evanston. WDCB's Dan Bender recently sat down with Jahari to talk about the new album and tonight's concert. He says his late start in music has actually helped to fuel his creative
4: spirit and swift rise through the music world. It's pretty unreal. It's like um, I never could have imagined all the connections that came through just playing music. And I started so late. I started when I was 14 and I went to college and I got a full scholarship to Madden School of Music. And it just ever since it just kept getting crazier and crazier. And I just never could have imagined what could have transpired before then. How did this happen so
8: fast for listeners that aren't familiar with your work? You come from a musical family, but as you mentioned, you didn't start playing until you were 14. I mean, tell us about that late start and about maybe that music that must've been percolating up inside of you before it started to all
4: come out. You know, what's interesting is the title of my project, Still Listening, actually reflects kind of the message of how I was younger and Before I even started playing music, I kind of remembered what music used to sound like to me and how there was such a mystery to it and how much I didn't know about music. And as I reflect on the cover, the album cover is a younger version of myself listening. And the back of the cover is an older version of myself that's still listening as if I was younger. And now I can understand the theory and all the notes and Back then, it's like I'm still connected to myself that didn't know that kind of theoretical knowledge and what music was and that kind of sense. So it's like a simultaneous kind of message of even our lives, as we get older, we kind of lose touch with our younger imagination. Do you hear it now, now that you're, you've been
8: in the thick of it for the last, what, 10 years or so? do you? hear it now differently when you have the construction of the music going on in your head and being able to decipher all that and understand it?
4: What's so interesting is that uh, as I reflect on music now, as the prior me that used to hear it, I feel like in a way I, I still can feel music the way that I used to, and yet the understanding is starting to fill in the spaces that were a mystery. It's kind of like a weird feeling. It's like I took for granted the mystery and imagination as a younger person, and as I get older, I want to try and stay in touch with my younger self. That's kind of what reflects to the album The message of the album is just staying in tune with your inner happiness and your younger happiness and your inner imagination. Never losing creativity, always staying imaginative no matter what age. I think Wayne Shorter talked a lot about this kind of thing.
8: Doesn't sound like you had a, could be music or any career, some people have a real plan in mind, if I'm going to do this, then I'm going to do that, and then I want to step up to this level. It sounds like a lot of things have just kind of unfolded for you. How, how did this all happen that you've connected with all these great musicians?
4: You know, when I initially started, what I found is that a lot of people that tend to start, let's say really young, they grow to have this love-hate relationship with music where they were forced to do it or they were forced into it. And I think because I started so late, it might've simultaneously been more of a blessing because I really wanted to do it. And I really had that genuine love and curiosity to really be passionate and want to really learn as much as I could. And I think because my mind was more developed, nobody forced me into it. It was more like a genuine desire to want to learn and want to grow and want to improve. And I spent every day, I would practice for hours. I would just, I just never wanted to stop. It was like what I really wanted to do. And by the time I got to college, it was not like I planned to, it was genuinely what I was passionate about. And every clip I saw, everything I wanted to learn, I would learn it. Or if I saw something, no matter how challenging it sounded, my mind would spend hours on just that just trying to transcribe our tatum or the hardest piano pieces or just putting all the time and hours in, not because of anything other than just wanting to do it i think because of that it just led me into continuing down that path of endless curiosity creativity and never wanting to stop even now i still practice every day i still want to Improve. I still have so much I, I want to. I just never want to stop.
8: Tell me about on the new album. You have a solo piano piece, or, or largely solo piano that that opens it up. Sounds like maybe there's a little synth or something along with it, creating a little atmosphere. But it's a solo piano. And then you hit the second song and it opens up into a a powerful band that kicks in. And this cycle continues throughout the album of the solo pieces juxtaposed with a hard-driving band. Tell me about that concept.
4: The concept is just to showcase different aspects of what influenced me musically. and I remember when I first was exposed to jazz, I didn't understand jazz. I kind of was always like, wow, this music is just nonstop. It's just keeps going. There's no resolution. There's nothing. I don't understand this. And I remember not understanding jazz, not realizing that they're just soloing over a form. Jazz can be so intellectual. I feel that you can lose touch with the musicality of it in a way and lose touch with how you can connect with people who don't understand music that just react to how it makes them feel.
8: What were some of the songs that really uh, did it for you when you were young, when this was all just a
4: mystery to you? You know, when I first heard Herbie Hancock's Tell Me a Bedtime Story, it's something about just the way he used to compose, it was a perfect blend of musical creativity in a sense that even though I didn't understand music or what it was, I could still listen and connect to his compositions because of the way he structured his pieces. It didn't go over my head, even though there was a lot that was going over my head that I didn't even understand until later, but yet I could still appreciate and enjoy what I was hearing in a way that it makes it infinitely greater. The more I know when I listen to that kind of thing, it's like, wow, now I understand what he's actually doing, and it makes it sound even better. Tell us about what's going to happen at the show at
8: Space that you're performing for the release of the new album, Still Listening.
4: So I'm, I'm flying in this drummer, Miguel Russell, who he's incredible. He's probably one of my favorite drummers. He's being noticed now. He's 19 years old. He's currently a student at Manhattan School of Music, and he's genuinely a prodigy. Truly mind-blowing level of talent. And my mother, you know, who's also one of my first influences, we're doing a mixture where she's playing upright bass, keyboards, you know, saxophone. And we composed and arranged things in a way where it's gonna sound like a full group, nothing missing. We're gonna have all kinds of parts. We're trading parts. There's during compositions, she'll be drifting into other instruments while I take the bass line on my feet have the organ pedals, which is a unique setup. And we have this whole crazy show. It's going to be super tight. So it'll be the three of you together at Space for yeah. the show at Space. It'll be the three of us, and there's going to be some special guests coming and joining us towards the end of the show. A lot of Chicago musicians and even people coming from out of town. It's going to be crazy. <laughs> Well, congratulations on the new release
8: and the show at Space. Sounds like it's going to be an exciting event. Your career
4: taking off, it's oh. great to see it. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It's been an honor, a pleasure. Thank you so much, Jahari. Thank you.
0: That was pianist Jahari Stampley. He spoke with WDCB's Dan Bindert. Stampley's debut album is titled Still Listening, and album release shows tonight at space in evanston at 8 p.m you can find out more about stampley's music at JahariStampley.com. and that's going to wrap up this edition of the arts section but remember you can always find more arts and culture online by visiting the program's website theartssection.org There you can find past episodes and individual features available to listen to on demand anytime you want, plus pictures and links that go along with all the features you hear on the show. My name is Gary Zydek. I hope you'll join me again next Sunday morning at 8 a.m. right here on 90.9 and 90.7 FM for another edition of The Arts Section. Until then, I hope you have a great week. Enjoy this beautiful September weather. Thanks for listening.